Lords of Limited is proud to be brought to you in part by StarCityGames.com. Not only are they the home of the top content and coverage on the web, they're also the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies. For more information, visit StarCityGames.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, we're fresh off the high from episode 100 and slumming it in episode 101. How do you feel right now? It's all downhill, Ben. That's it. I thought we were just going to do a clip show of episode 100 for this episode. How does that sound? That sounds a little meta. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm doing well. Looking forward to talking some Modern Horizons with you. Yeah, for sure. That spoiler came out real fast. Yeah, goodbye War of the Spark. I think we're going to probably try to cover both formats moving forward, but this is all happening. Core 2020 stuff is set to happen like a few weeks from now, I think. Yeah, so this summer is uh, sort of a kid in a candy store for us uh, drafters, but we're going to try and do both, as Ben said. And the good news is that Modern Horizons is out longer than like normal master sets. I was thinking it would just be out for like three or four weeks, but it's out until middle of August on Magic Online. So we'll have plenty of time to dive into both that and War and Core 2020 this summer. Yeah, so let's check in on the trophy leaderboard. I am now 59 drafts deep in war with 131 and 45 overall record, 26 trophies, and dipped my win rate down to 74%. How about you? I'm dipping as well. 99 drafts, 199 to 91 win-loss record, 31 trophies, 69% win rate. It's hard out here. These past like week and a half, two weeks has been tough for War of the Spark drafters on Magic Online. It really has. It feels like the meta has shifted a little bit, and we're going to talk about that in a second, what we think maybe sort of our dip in win rate has contributed from... I also had a chance this week. I was the Watsy featured streamer of the day on Tuesday, which was pretty awesome. So got like pack codes to give away from Watsy and streamed Arena all day. And so we did some war best of three on Arena. So I got a taste of that. Did four or five drafts, ended up 16 and five overall and two trophies on stream. So that was sweet too. Got a chance to draft with the bots. And I would say it's probably a mistake to be anything other than Grixis with the bots, unless you have a really strong green or white rare pulling you towards green and white, because otherwise there's just no incentivization for you to not be in one of the three best decks in the format, because I think you can steer into them with the bots. Yeah, that makes sense. I have not dipped into drafting this format on Arena yet, though I may at some point, though I don't know, with Modern Horizons coming out, I may just be doing all MTGO all the time like an old man. All right, so we do have a lot to jam pack in today. Before we get into any of that good stuff, we got to talk about some other good stuff. The Lords of Limited Patreon, patreon.com slash Lords of Limited, where you can give back to the show if you so choose. Of course, the show will always be free, but uh, when people choose to give back, we want to make sure we give them some perks. We did recently unlock our stretch goal to get merchandise. We have that in the works. We're going to be getting you some information about getting some sweet Lords of Limited tees and maybe sweatshirts, hoodies, that sort of stuff. Um, And we will get that out to you as soon as we can. Uh, Of course, the base level that we give back to folks who want to give to the show is access to the Lords of Limited Discord. It is popping. It is bumping. It is moving and grooving. You want to get in there to discuss Modern Horizons when it comes comes out we're going to break that format just like we broke war of the spark don't you worry and we want to make sure we shout out each and every new patron the week that they join and we got some folks to welcome this week we want to welcome mossy beard steven s alex christian mike chris blaine john daniel aiden valerie cody ryan t jarvis joe ben Andrew, Stephen e levin ryan s pierre antoine luis Ken and Slater. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah. Thank you so much. That was really about the tipping point for me needing to hop in there. That was (laughs) was a nice amount of names. Thank you so much, everyone, for the support. 
And again, as Ethan said, this is the best time to be getting in at the start of a format. There's already tons of Modern Horizons 1 talk going on, and we are going to break this format wide open. Had a discussion about the top commons in there today, and I'm sure as people get a chance to play, the first few weeks of a format are just nonsense in the Lords of Limited Discord. It's just messages galore. So as we dive into sort of towing the line between covering both War of the Spark and Modern Horizons, I want to do just a little sort of like state of the format address check-in on why perhaps Ben and I have uh, felt things get a little more difficult this week. What's been your experience uh, this past week of drafts, Ben? Traps have been hard. There was a point early on in this week where I just could not get into Grixis. I've been able to do it more so the last few days, but the beginning of this week, I was drafting white or green almost every single draft, and I was much more willing to get into those colors too, especially white, because it seemed like white was just really open. Yeah, I was kind of like soft forcing white. It sort of felt like, I mean, I know I reference this time a lot on the podcast when we talk about things shifting, but that one time in Hour of Devastation where it felt like you just like couldn't get into green because everyone was trying to draft the Oasis Ritualist deck. And so even if I saw like a really good green on common, I would try and give myself an excuse to not take it or to like bias away from it because I just felt like so many times, like four out of five times, I was going to be pushed off that color anyway. So I might as well start by not being in that color at all. And that's sort of how I felt about white. Like if I see a good white common or some good white uncommons, I'm going to like heavily bias towards that. Now, I don't know if that's the case. I haven't really been able to draft the past few days, but that was my experience early on in the week. Yeah, I was experiencing the same thing. I was still trying to get into Grixis, but I was just way more willing to move off of it. Yeah, the other thing that I felt like I've been trying to do to maybe take advantage of the powerful cards that I see that are in the Grixis colors, but not being able to actually draft one of the Grixis color pairs is to move my way into like the green based multicolor decks. I've had some like green white XXX decks or green red XXX decks, and those have felt better to me now that it feels like people are snapping up all the blue, red and black cards they can. Yeah, and you've got a little bit here about density of colors at the end of pack one not being huge indicators of what's open. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I guess I just have felt like in sets past, I think one of the big times this happened for us was in Guilds of Ravnica. We would see like a bunch of green cards at the end of packs, and I think that was a pretty good indicator that either Selesnya or Golgari was what your seat was supposed to do. And that's when you would see cards that weren't super exciting, but were maybe just like good role players like Iron Shell Beetle or like Crawl Foragers or you know, Hitchclaw Recluse, that sort of stuff. Here, I've been seeing those kinds of clunkers. Like, Blue's roster of commons gets pretty weak towards the bottom, you know, when you're looking at... I think Kazmina's Transmutation is pretty bad most of the time. I know that you've talked about it having a home in some blue-white control decks. I think the 3-2 Naga... There's just, like, a number of clunky cards, and you sometimes see, like, three or four of those towards the end of the pack... And earlier, I might have said like, oh, there is something to be said about a density of cards, not only just like quality of cards, but a quantity of cards in a color towards the end of the pack, signaling that a color or color pair is open. And that has not been my experience. Like even when I see those sort of like four blue cards or three red cards at the end of a pack, that doesn't really mean that that color is open necessarily. Right. Lately, I've had a couple weird drafts where I've just been in one color almost all the way to pack three this week towards the end of the week. It's happened three times now. I just had one right before we started recording where I was mono black going into pack three. Whoa. And you were mono white going into pack three yesterday. Yeah. And I had another one right before that where I was mono red going into pack three. 
it wouldn't be a check-in with a bunch of bullet points from our show notes if I wasn't going to get on my soapbox and talk about a card that I think people are grossly undervaluing. Karn the Great Creator is a very good limited magic card. And I think people just like snap it up on Magic Online because it's 10 bucks. Also, stop passing that card. It's 10 bucks. But it does not, it's not like a build around or anything, I don't think. It's not really hard to get some number of artifacts in your sideboard. Iron Bully, Silverwing, Mana Geode, Guild Globe, God Pharaoh Statue, I think has a home here. Like it's fine to just grab that with Karn. And obviously I've done this a couple times. It's pretty Nutter Butters with Parhelion too. But the thing about Karn is, and I was like trying to, I think I was in Jamie Topple's stream and I was trying to convince her to draft it and like, you know, I guess draft around it, quote unquote, even though I don't think that's quite what you need to do. And someone in chat was like, oh, I played with Karn earlier today. It wasn't good. All it did was like draw me a card out of the sideboard and like gain me a bunch of life while my opponent attacked it. I was like, that's all one card did for you? That's good. And it can do so much more than that. Like it's a pretty serious source of card advantage and also can be a win condition. So I would recommend people playing with that card if they haven't yet. Yeah. And the last thing I would say just sort of on our little check in here is that it gets much harder to win in the format when everybody's building their decks correctly. When everybody's prioritizing two drops highly, ways to pressure planeswalkers, the cheap removal, the cheap interaction, the games are tough and really interactive and it's hard to find an edge. And I think that's a little bit part of what's happening with you and my dip in win rate. I think we came in really understanding the format and knowing how to draft it before a lot of the rest of the world and the rest of the world feels like they are catching up this week pretty hard. I'm just saying, like, I think we should just go back to not doing a podcast and just winning at Magic. (laughs) I think that's better. (laughs) Nah, I'll take the podcast. All right, enough of this War of the Spark nonsense. Let's dive in to our Modern Horizons archetype breakdown. What are we doing here? We're going to go through each color pair and break it down as sort of enablers and payoffs, try to tell you what's going on in each color pair, just sort of a brief overview. And then at the end of the episode, we're going to rank the top commons and uncommons. But before we get into any of that, we get some general thoughts about the format. The first of which is that the uncommon land cyclers, there's a cycle of these, one for each color, that have single mana cycling for their color and come into play tapped are very, very, very high picks. Yeah, I mean, if you played with any of the deserts from Hour of Devastation that did this, but they cost one and the color to cycle, or I think it was in Vintage Masters, they had this, but these lands were at common. These are just really, really high picks. I feel like you're probably taking them over I would imagine all commons, I think I'm just taking these over just because like, again, we'll talk about this all the time, but when you get to play lands as your draft picks, then like your deck is better because you're playing more of the cards you draft rather than just jamming basics in your deck. And these are super flexible and also have synergy with some of the mechanics and like missions of each of these archetypes. There's also snow-covered lands in this set. That's sort of one of the things. There's full art snow-covered lands, a basic land in each pack. And these are also going to be really high picks to enable snow-permanent-related picks down the line. So blue-green is sort of the snow color pair. So I think Ireland's and Forest are going to be a little bit higher picks than the rest of the Mardu-colored lands, but still probably all of them fairly high picks. And you do have to draft these. I was talking about Modern Horizons on Twitch stream today, just sort of going through it, all the cards and what we thought the top commons were and things like that with Twitch chat. And several times people asked, wait, you have to draft? snow basics you don't just get a minute put as many as you want in your deck and that is true you have to draft and actually spend picks on the snow basics okay so yeah if you were around in like battle for zendikar oath of the gatewatch block it was like when you had to draft wastes to cast those sort of like generic colorless mana i forget i always forget which ones they are i think they're generic mana spells uh anyway that's what snow colored lands are are going to be like here and i think they're going to be high picks i've seen a lot of people in discord sort of poo-pooing this archetype, but I actually think this archetype is going to be quite strong. I just think you need to know to prioritize these lands. 
Well, it feels like you can't support two blue-green drafters. That's my initial hot take. I think if you're the only blue-green drafter, you're going to get hooked up. But I think if you're fighting somebody else for the snow forest and snow islands, it's going to be really tough. Even hotter take, I'm not sure that like any of these archetypes support more than one drafter. I think the ideal situation is all eight players are a different two-color pair. Yeah, certainly. The next item on our list here is changelings. These are super powerful cards. These are creatures that are all creature types at all points, like in your hand, on the battlefield, in your library. These are going to enable a number of different tribal synergies. We'll get into this a little bit later when we talk about black-white. But I think these are going to be really high picks. And I especially expect there's a one-mana, one-one artifact that's a changeling. I think that's going to overperform as well. Ooh, hot take. One mana, one, one. Overperforming. I think so. Next on the list is Talismans. This is a cycle of enemy colored pair mana rocks. It's two mana. They can tap for a colorless or you can tap them and pay one life to add, for example, black or white to your mana pool. Just the ability to ramp and fix for two mana is pretty strong. And these are probably going to be fairly high picks. Ninjutsu is one of the mechanics here. Now, there's a ton of mechanics in this format. We're not going to be talking about all of them. That would be ridiculous. But Ninjutsu is sort of a theme of, of blue and black here. And that's going to make combat very tricky against the, when you're playing against those colors. So Ninjutsu is an ability on some creatures that allows you to basically like swap it for an unblocked creature. So if you go past blockers, your creature is unblocked. Then you can just sort of like pay the Ninjutsu cost and replace it with the creature that was unblocked on the battlefield, and then you pick the creature up and put that into your hand. Much like raid triggers from Ixalan or morbid triggers, or even thinking about enabling Vraska's finisher in the current set, there's a lot of factors to consider in combat with ninjutsu. And in general, I think this is going to make you want to play more defensively against these colors to deny them from unlocking those ninjutsu activations. Yeah, this is one of the mechanics I'm looking forward to exploring the most because I wasn't playing limited much during the Kamigawa block. I bet I did one or two drafts of the set with Ninjutsu before I was really a good drafter, so I don't really have a sense of how that's really going to play out. From talking to Twitch chat today, it seems like Ninjutsu is a pretty value-oriented mechanic. That's one of the decks I'm most excited about in this set. And you just mentioned there are a lot of keywords in the set. There are over 40 keywords in the set, but don't let that intimidate you. For the most part, the color pairs have an identity, and it's pretty clear what they want to be doing and what their archetype is trying to do. And the keywords, you're just going to have to read the cards, and they're all fairly straightforward. So don't be intimidated by the fact that there's a lot going on in this format. I think the gold uncommon for each color pair really points you down the path for what the deck is trying to do. You know, there there is a list of like what the 10 color archetypes are. And I didn't look at that before diving into the show notes here. I just sort of like went off of what I thought from looking at the commons and uncommons and definitely used the gold uncommon as like the guidepost for that. And for the most part, I think I was like nine out of 10 matched up with what like Watsi said the color pairs were. I sort of disagreed about red black, but we'll get into that in just a minute. Yeah, and the last takeaway here I have from looking at the spoiler today and just trying to pick out top commons and talking to Twitch chat about the decks and the archetypes, the commons seem really weak to me individually. I think it's going to be really important, as it always is, to find the open archetype and make sure your commons really work synergistically towards a goal together, because I don't think they're individually that powerful. I agree. All right, let's dive right in. So we're going to look at all 10 color pairs here, only looking at commons and uncommons, because that's the bread and butter of limited. And we're going to start off with red, black, which I think is sacrifice. I know that it's sort of deemed like red, black goblins, but I think that's a much more secondary version of the deck. I think red, black sacrifice is the name of the game here. There are a number of free sacrifice outlets, and that pairs nicely with we have an active treason variant and also a number of token makers. So we'll start with this active treason variant and we're just going to strap in here. Ben and I are going to be reading a lot of cards. There's a lot of new cards, a lot of reprints from old sets. So we think 
it's best for us to read the text of these cards as we talk about them. So Goat Nap is our active treason variant. This is two and a red for a sorcery. You gain control of a creature until end of turn. You untap it. It gains haste until end of turn. And then the goat part is if that creature is a goat, it gets plus three plus O until end of turn. Of course, there are no actual goats in the set, but there are changelings, which are goats. So, but that's really not why you're playing the goat nap. You're playing it to steal the creature and then sacrifice it. So we've got some free sacrifice outlets. Carrion Feeder is one that's a single black for a 1-1. It can't block, but you can sack a creature to put a plus and plus one counter on it. The other sacrifice outlet that's really strong is Bogarden Dragonheart. This is two and a red for a 2-2. Sacrifice another creature until end of turn. Bogarden Dragonheart becomes a dragon with base power and toughness 4-4, flying, and haste. That's super powerful. Doesn't take many sacrifices before your opponent is dead. No, it does not. Uh, and then there's a sort of more expensive, not repeatable one. There's Silimgar Scavenger, which is four and a black for a 2-3 flyer. It has exploit, which means... When it enters the battlefield, you can sacrifice a creature. And then whenever another creature you control dies, you put a plus and plus one counter on it. It gains haste until end of turn if it exploited that creature. So this is a flying threat that can grow as the game progresses if you're sacrificing a bunch of stuff. So not only can you steal your opponent's stuff with Goat Nap, but you also can take advantage of some token makers that the set provides. What do we have here? It wouldn't be a sacrifice deck without sacrifice fodder, and chief among them is Putrid Goblin, one in a black for a 2-2 with Persist, so you'll be able to get two sacrifice triggers out of your Putrid Goblin. There's Goblin War Party, which is a really exciting card. I think this is going to be a strong role player in a number of decks. Three and a red for a sorcery. You choose one. You can create three 1-1 one, one red goblin creature tokens or creatures you control get plus one, plus one and gain haste until end of turn. And you also can entwine it for two and a red, meaning if you pay two and a red in addition to the cost, you get to choose all the modes, not just one. And the last card we've got here is Wart Eye Witch, two and a black for a 3-2. Whenever it or another creature you control dies, scry one. So if you're assuming you're sacrificing other creatures first, this is also going to help you mitigate flood and things like that and just help your deck run smoothly. I think sort of think of like Wart Eye Witch as the burning prophet for the black red sacrifice deck. Yeah, and I think all of the pieces look like they're there. They look like they're at common for the sacrifice deck to come together. And I think the goblin sub-theme, which exists in red-black, is possible, but it's much more uncommon-based, so I don't think it's going to come together as much. The biggest payoff for that is the, of course, gold uncommon of the set in black-red, which is Munitions Expert. It's black-red for a 1-1 with flash, and when it ETBs, you can have it deal damage to target creature or planeswalker equal to the number of goblins you control, and it itself is a goblin as well. There's also Sling Gang Lieutenant. I love this card. Three and a black for a 1-1. When it ETBs, you create two 1-1 red goblin creature tokens. So three bodies for four mana and has the ability to sacrifice a goblin. Target player loses one life and you gain one life. Just going to be great sacrifice fodder and a great way to close out the game. And then another two for one here is Goblin Matron, which is two and a red for a 1-1. And when it ETBs, you can search your library for a goblin card. And if you do, you reveal it, put it into your hand, then shuffle your library. So this can search up those other goblins we mentioned. It can search up changelings. And then it's also then just going to leave behind another body that you can sacrifice to the rest of the deck. So I think this deck looks pretty sweet. Yeah, Goblin Matron is going to be a very high pick if you have a strong changeling card. So altogether, you're you're trying to put together these sacrifice outlets and goat nap. So the thing that's going to be a question mark for me is how highly do you think you're going to need to pick goat nap? It's sort of the the reason to be in this archetype, right? Assuming you get the sacrifice outlets. I mean, I think like most active treason style red black sacrifice decks, goat nap should be the card that you should wheel. Like no one else should want this card. 
So it should be the reward for this being the correct lane for you. And then that should be the sort of thing where you can be like, all right, I get to take Goblin Matron as the first card I take out of this pack. And then on the wheel, I'm going to get the Goat Nap. Sometimes I think there's something to be said too for you can push people out of the deck by taking the Goat Naps aggressively in pack one. Just depends on how premier of an archetype this ends up being. I think if this is one of the top tier archetypes, you might find people fighting over the Goat Naps. And if it ends up being middle of the road, I think it's going to be more what you were describing where you're trying to wheel the Goat Naps. Well, I think the thing that makes this deck good, or at least what makes it look good to me, is that it doesn't look like it's reliant on Goat Nap. Sometimes these archetypes are super reliant on making active trees and a removal spell, but black and red just have good removal, and then I think there's also just enough synergy and sacrifice fodder and free sacrifice outlets that this deck may not even need the Goat Nap to be tier one. That's a great point. I'm sold. Next up, we've got red-green lands in the graveyard. This is sort of a red-green mid-range deck with bonuses for having lands in your graveyard, as well as taking advantage of Threshold, which is a mechanic where if you have seven or more cards in your graveyard, your cards get some sort of bonus. So if we take a look at payoffs for having lands in your graveyard, first up is Ruination Rioter. This is red-green for a 2-2. When it dies, you may have it deal damage to any target equal to the number of land cards in your graveyard. Next up, we got sort of a Flame Tongue Kabu variant. This is Igneous Elemental. It's four red red for a 4-3. It costs two less to cast if there's a land card in your graveyard. And when it ETBs, you may have it deal two damage to target creature. So hopefully a four mana 4-3 that's going to deal two to a creature when it comes into play. Yeah, that card's super powerful if you enable it. And just another reason that those uncommon cycling lands are going to be very high picks. Yep. Next up, we've got Magmatic Sinkhole. This is five and a red for an instant with Delve. So you can exile a card from your graveyard while casting it to pay one of the generic mana symbols. And Magmatic Sinkhole deals five damage to target creature or planeswalker, so it can delve away some of the cards you've got in your graveyard. Marasa Behemoth is up next. This is four green green for a five five with trample, but it gets plus three plus three if there's a land card in your graveyard. And last, we've got Or Scale Guardian. This is five red red for a four four dragon with flying and haste and costs one less to cast for each land card in your graveyard super powerful there. Yeah, so there's a lot of cards that get bonuses from lands in your graveyard. I mean, Magmatic Sinkhole is just like a removal spell that you want to get cheaper, so you're not trying to exile the land cards right out of your graveyard necessarily because that synergizes with the rest of the cards, but I still think sort of goes with that game plan of like trying to churn things into your graveyard. So how do we do that? Well, Ben mentioned the mana cyclers, the uncommon cyclers. These are going to come up a lot as really just strong picks, as we talked about, and these are going to be the easiest ways, I think, to get lands into your graveyard. Nantuko Cultivator is another sort of clunky one. This is three and a green for a 2-2. When it comes into play, you can discard any number of land cards from your hand and put that many plus one plus one counters on Nantuko Cultivator and draw that many cards. Sometimes you're just not going to have lands in your hand when you try to cast this on turn four when you want to. I mean, it's going to be nice if you've got like a really land heavy opening hand, but I think more frequently this is going to be a turn seven, eight play after you've got, you know, you're, you've drawn your seventh and eight lands and want to pitch them to something. Yeah, so maybe it's not the enabler that the deck wants. I do think Springbloom Druid is, though. This is two and a green for a 1-1, sort of like a harrow attached to a creature. When it enters the battlefield, you can sacrifice land. If you do, you search your library for up to two basic land cards, put them onto the battlefield tapped, then shuffle your library. That card is great, and I think it's going to be great in a lot of decks outside of this red-green deck as well. Going to be able to double fix with that guy. Mm Mm-hmm. Excavating Anurid is up next. This is four and a green for a four four. When it ETBs, you can sacrifice a land. If you do, draw a card and has threshold. As long as there are seven or more cards in your graveyard, it gets plus one plus one and vigilance. So if you have seven or more cards in your graveyard, you're getting a five five vigilance for five. 
as well as flood protection. So when it ETBs, you can sacrifice that land and draw a card. So if you feel like you're hitting too many land drops, excavating Unruid gets you out of that situation, as well as puts a land there for all these other cards that care about having land in your graveyard. Uh, the last card on this list is Geomancer's Gambit, which looks a little innocuous, but I think is going to do just enough. This is two and a red for a sorcery. You destroy target land. Its controller may search their library for a basic land card, put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle their library, and you draw a card. So I think more often than not, you're not using this on your opponent's lands, unless um, maybe you see them splashing off of one basic, but you're going to be using this on your own lands to uh, maybe enable a splash of your own, but more importantly, to get a land into your graveyard. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that one. It feels a little clunky to take all of turn three off to put a land in your graveyard. I'm not sure how well that's going to work out yeah, for you. Yeah, I, I totally agree. The format could be too fast for that kind of effect. All right, what do we got next? Up next is blue-green snow permanence. So snow-covered basic lands, as we talked about being in each pack, and various other cards that have the super type, I think, snow. These snow permanents are going to turn on bonuses of certain cards. The best of the bunch include, top of the list, Winter's Rest. This is the claustrophobia variant in the format. It's a one and a blue for a snow enchantment aura. You enchant a creature. When it enters the battlefield, you tap enchanted creature, and as long as you control another snow permanent, enchanted creature doesn't untap during its controller's untap step all right let me ask you this because i was pretty high on that card as well and then twitch chat brought up a pretty important point mm -hmm. so with the amount of bounce and blink that exists in the set i think enchantment style removal goes down a bit what do you think about that how much bounce and blink is there i mean i know so i know blue white flicker is an archetype right there's blue white flicker there's mana war at common there's a bounce spell for a single blue at common there's sacrifice synergies in black and red that's going to leave bodies around to be sacrificed. I think all of that adds up to Winter's Rest not being quite as good as it looks on face value, in addition to the fact that you've got to do work to turn it into a claustrophobia. All right. Well, if that's true, then this archetype is going to be much worse. If Winter's Rest isn't good, then I don't think this archetype is going to be very good. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be depending, but I do think that's a great point that Twitch chat brought up about that stuff. That the body, care, like the sacrifice deck cares about the body and there's blink stuff. There's ways to punish enchantment removal in the set for sure. Black, red, blue, and white all have ways to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's not great. Next up, we've got Abominable Tree Folk. This is two blue-green for a star-star trample. Abominable Tree Folk's power and toughness are equal to the number of snow permanents you control. And when it enters the battlefield, tap target creature and opponent controls. That creature doesn't untap during its controller's next untap step. We've got a sort of like the Lanor Elf variant. There isn't really a mana dork in the set. This is the best that we can get. This is Rhyme Tender. It's one and a green for a 2-2 snow creature, and you can tap it to untap another target snow permanent. So you could, you know, untap a creature, sure, give it vigilance, pseudo-vigilance, but I think the ideal use of this card is to untap a snow-covered land. Yeah, you also have at the top of the header here, snow permanence slash mill for blue-green. Yes. We've got a couple mill cards. So there's a card called Iceberg Cankrix. This is one and a blue for an 0-4 crab. Whenever another snow permanent enters the battlefield under your control, you may have target player put the top two cards of their library into their graveyard. And I think sometimes you're maybe going to want to self-mill with this card. There are a lot of decks that care about having cards in the graveyard. And you might be able to get enough going to mill your opponent out, but there's also going to be some tension there because you might actually be helping your opponent if they've got a graveyard-based deck. But there's another card that goes along with Iceberg Cankrix. What is that? This is Stream of Thought. This is a single blue for a sorcery. Target player puts the top 
four cards of their library into their graveyard, and you shuffle up to four cards from your graveyard into your library. And it also has Replicate for two blue blue, meaning when you cast this spell, you can copy it for each time you paid its Replicate cost, and you can choose new targets for the copy. So essentially, you could play this for a single blue, but you could also play two blue 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 and mill your opponent for eight. Yeah, that seems pretty strong. That's pretty strong. I think if you can get like, I mean, Stream of Thought, no one else should want that card. And Iceberg Kankrix, no one else should want that card. So maybe the blue-green, maybe the best card is the Kankrix here. And you just try and get like four or five of those and a bunch of Stream of Thoughts. And then all your snow permanents, mill your opponent for two. And then your Stream of Thoughts are just like taking a huge chunk of their library. I think this is going to be a real deck. I can certainly see it being a real deck. And I think it's important to not just say Winter's Rest is a bad card. It's still a good card. I just think it's worth noting that there are a lot of ways to punish it. Yeah, that's fair. So that's one we need to keep an eye on going into the format. What's next? We've got Green White Convoke slash Go Wide Tokens. Watsi's name for this is Creature Fall as a, an homage to Landfall. So there are a bunch of cards that care about creatures entering the battlefield. So flicker effects, token makers, all are going to be ways to make creatures valuable in this archetype. The first of which is the Gold Uncommon, and it is a huge payoff for this. We've got Good Fortune Unicorn, one Green White for a 2-2 whenever another creature enters the battlefield under control put a plus one plus one counter on that creature Ooh. and we have a number of cards that make multiple bodies i think top of the list for me is squirrel nest this is a reprint one green green for an aura you enchant a land and enchanted land has tap put a one one green squirrel creature token onto the battlefield next up we've got mother bear one and a green for a two two and then if mother bear happens to die so sad you can pay three green green to exile Mother Bear from your graveyard to create two 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 green bear creature tokens and the circle of life goes on. There's a card that's very reminiscent of Sprout Swarm here. This is Recruit the Worthy. It's a single white for an instant to make a 1-1 one, one white soldier creature token, but it has buyback for three. Buyback means that you can pay the buyback cost when you cast it and it'll go back to your hand rather than into your graveyard. So for three and a white, you can repeatably make a 1-1 one, one white soldier token. Next up, we've got Trumpeting Herd. Speaking of good cards, this Ooh. one is rock solid. Two green green for a sorcery. Create a 3-3 three, three green elephant creature token with rebound. So that means if you cast the spell from your hand, exile it as it resolves. At the beginning of your next upkeep, you get to cast it from exile without paying its mana cost. So the first turn you cast it, you get a 3-3. Three, three, and then the next turn on your upkeep, you get to cast it again for free and get another 3-3. Three, three. So six power and toughness for four mana over two turns. Uh, last on this list is Twin Silk Spider. This is two and a green for a 1-2 with reach. When it enters the battlefield, you create a 1-2 green spider creature token with reach. So two 1-2s with reach for three mana. And then you're trying to combine this go-wide stuff with ways to pump your team, the first of which is Rocks Veteran. This is three and a white for a 2-4 with battle cry. When it attacks, tap target creature and opponent controls. So sort of a throwback to Territorial Hammer Skull and Star Crown Stag. And then battle cry is whenever this attacks, each other attacking creature gets plus one plus O until end of turn. So while it's locking down a blocker, it's also going to pump your entire team that you're going wide with in this green white archetype. Next up is Knight of Old Banalia. It's three white white for a three three. When it enters the battlefield, other creatures you control get plus one plus one until end of turn. But it also has suspend five for a single white mana, which means that rather than pay its casting cost, you can just pay the single white and exile it with five time counters on it. And at the beginning of each of your turns, you remove a time counter from it. And then when you remove the last, this card comes into play with haste. So tough to time it maybe with suspend, but a nice little like mini anthem for your creatures for one turn when this comes into play. 
Green White also has a combat trick called Stirring Address. This is one and a white for an instant. Target creature you control gets plus two, plus two until end of turn, but also does double duty with this go wide theme. It's got Overload for five and a white. Overload is an alternate casting cost for this spell, and if you pay the five and a white Overload cost, you get to give your entire team plus two, plus two instead of just target creature. Similar effect here. We've got Scale Up, single green. Until end of turn, target creature you control becomes a green worm with base power and toughness six, four. So it makes it a craw worm. Nice throwback there. And it also has overload for four green greens. You can make all your creatures six fours until end of turn at sorcery speed. So a, a number of ways to not only like pump the creatures plus one plus one or getting the battle cry from plus one plus oh, but some pretty big bonuses here with these overload spells. Yeah, this looks like a very strong archetype to me. It's going to be really resilient. It's going to be resilient to removal because you're not relying on any one card. It's going to be one of the better aggro decks in the format, I think. Speaking of aggro decks in the format, that moves us to red-white slivers. So while there are slivers in each of the colors, this is the greatest concentration of them with the addition of shapeshifters from white. So there are the changeling creatures mostly concentrated in white and black, and so white's going to take advantage of those. Those creatures will also be slivers. I want to point you to a card, Volatile Claws. This is two and a red for an instant. Until end of turn, creatures you control get plus two, plus oh, and gain all creature types. I think this is going to be a real card here as it's going to turn all of your creatures into slivers and they're going to reap the benefits of those particular cards. Thinking about Cleaving Sliver, this is three and a red for a 2-2. Sliver creatures you control get plus two plus O permanently. So imagine having that in play, casting Volatile Claws, all of a sudden all of your creatures get plus four plus O until end of turn. It's a pretty big game. Cleaving Sliver being four mana means that two and three drop slivers are very important to curve into this card. There's a lot of slivers to read so we're not going to list them all off here but i would just keep that in mind and then i think you also want to think about a go wide variant about the cards that we talked about before you know the rocks veteran the knight of old banalia the stirring address goblin war party battle screech is a card that's going to be great in both red white and green white or really just great in any deck that can cast it this is a reprint it's two white white for a sorcery you make two one one white bird creature tokens with flying and that has flashback tap three untapped white creatures you control Yeah, there's some awkward tensions with red-white slivers. When red-white slivers wins, it's going to win super hard. But you also have to be really worried when you're playing with red-white slivers about attacking into open mana and your opponents messing with your slivers at instant speed. So say you've got that cleaving sliver on the battlefield giving all your slivers plus two plus oh. If your opponent can bounce that or kill it at instant speed, all of a sudden their blocks might look a lot better. So slivers definitely relies on all of the creatures working together and can get disrupted by removal or things like that. There's one sliver I really like that helps mitigate that problem a little bit called blade back sliver this is one in a red for a 2-2 and if you're hellbent which means you have no cards in hand sliver creatures you control have tap this creature deals one damage target player or planeswalker i think that's going to be a really good card in these sliver decks to help you close the game out maybe you're going to get in some early damage and then you don't want to get your slivers into combat anymore but you've got the board clogged and all of a sudden you're just going to be able to deal four on your opponent's end step and then four when you untap and they're just going to be dead Next deck up we've got here, I think this is going to be near and dear to both your and my heart. This is blue-white ETB triggers, also known as blinking creatures. So you're trying to combine enter the battlefield creatures here with flicker effects or blink effects. So let's take a look at some of the enter the battlefield creatures. First up is the classic mana war, two and a blue for a 2-2 when it ETBs return target creature to its owner's hand. And worth noting, you have to have a creature on the battlefield or mana war will bounce itself if you've not played with that card before. We've also got a regular cohort. I think this is going to be strong in a lot of white decks. People are calling this call the changelings, two white white for a 2-2 with shapeshifter. It's every creature type. And when it comes into play, you make a 
2-2 colorless shapeshifter creature token with changeling as well. Another good blink target is Pondering Mage. Three blue blue for a 3-4 when it ETBs. Look at the top three cards of your library, then put them back in any order, and you may shuffle your library. So if you don't like the top three, you shuffle, and then you get a different one and draw a card. So you end up up a card, and you get to sort of manipulate the top of your library a little bit. Watcher for Tomorrow is a really strong card. One and a blue for a 2-1 with Hideaway. When it comes into play, it enters the battlefield tapped. When it does, you look at the top four cards of your library. Exile one face down and put the rest on the bottom of your library. But when the card leaves the battlefield, you put the exiled card into your hand. So if you have this come into play, it doesn't have to die for you to get that card. And then you get to just rebuy that ETB hideaway trigger. Yeah, really high on that card. I think it looks super good. Next up, we've got Vesper Lark, two and a white for a 2-1 flyer. When it leaves the battlefield, return target creature card with power one or less from your graveyard to the battlefield and has the evoke cost of one and a white. So sort of a throwback to Rebel Lark there. Fairy Seer is also on this list. This is a single blue for a 1-1 flyer. When it enters the battlefield, scry two. This is another card I think is going to overperform. I think people are going to like look at a lot of 1-mana one 1-1s one that usually aren't very good and limited, and I think the 1-mana one 1-1s one for the most part are actually pretty strong in this set. Yeah, Fairy Seer seems like a great enabler for the ninjutsu blue-black deck as well. Yeah, I think so. All right, and then that moves us on to the flicker effects that we need to actually flicker our value creatures. So the first one is Settle Beyond Reality. This is sort of doing double duty here as removal and value. Four and a white for a sorcery. Choose one or both. Exile target creature you don't control and or exile target creature you do control and then return it to the battlefield under its owner's control. Ephemerate is a single white for an instant. Exile target creature you control, then return it to the battlefield under its owner's control, and it has rebound. That's the ability to cast this again at the beginning of your next upkeep for free. And the last one here is Soul Herder. This is blue-white's headliner uncommon. One blue-white for a 1-1 spirit, and whenever a creature is exiled from the battlefield, put a plus one plus one counter on Soul Herder. And then at the beginning of your end step, you may exile another target creature you control, then return that card to the battlefield under its owner's control. So on your end step, you get to flicker something and get that ETB trigger. And just a little quick note here, I do think blue-white control has been alluded to, probably still exists. White has two removal spells at common, blue has a ton of card draw and evasive threats. That's all sort of a recipe for a good blue-white control deck. And I think Phantom Ninja, that's just the one blue-blue for a 2-2 that can't be blocked. That at common can just be a great win condition for these kinds of decks after you just like turtle up, gain full control of the board, and then just win over a number of turns with attacks from an unblockable creature. I'm going to be super annoyed losing to Phantom Ninja on stream. <laughs> Just like be at eight life and be like, come on, deck, come on. All right, that's going to move us on to, I think, what's going to be my favorite archetype of the format, Blue Black Ninjitsu. This is cheap evasive creatures combined to enable cheap ninjutsu activations of creatures. So there are three common ninjutsu creatures, one at uncommon, and then there's Throat Seeker, which is two and a black for a 3-2 Vampire Ninja and says unblocked attacking ninjas you control have lifelink. So there's a little bit more ninja synergy there. I think a huge thing to remember here is that changelings are ninja as well. So changeling outcast I have as a huge card in this archetype. This is single black for a 1-1 changeling and it can't block and also can't be blocked. So not only is this going to not be blocked by your opponent's creatures, so it's going to be a ninja hitting your opponents and some cards care about just any ninja hitting your opponent or being unblocked like we talked about with Throat Seeker, but it's also going to be a really easy way to enable your ninjutsu creatures from your hand as well. Fairy Seer, as we talked about earlier, is also going to be a great enabler for this deck. That's the single blue 1-1 flyer that when it ETBs, you scry to. 
Gluttonous Slug not only has the best flavor text in the entire format with no <laughs> amount of salt will save you, but this is going to be a really good Ninjutsu enabler as well. It's one and a black for a 0-3 with Menace, and it has Evolve, meaning whenever a creature ETBs under your control, if that creature has greater power or toughness than this creature, you put a plus and plus one counter on it. But I think at its best, a two-mana 0-3 Menace is going to be really easy to enable Ninjutsu because it's unlikely if you have other attackers that your opponent is going to want to spend two blockers on this and then you're going to be able to just go all right pick up the slug put in my ninjutsu creature and moving on to more expensive options we've got the aforementioned phantom ninja the one blue blue two two unblockable so really excited about this i think the enablers are there i think the ninjutsu cards are really strong probably should mention the headliner of the bunch which is ingenious infiltrator this is two blue black for a two three whenever a ninja you control deals combat damage to a player draw a card and it has ninjutsu for blue black i just want to play the changeling on one attack on turn two and then ninjutsu this in and draw a card that's ridiculous yeah that card is absurd i was talking to twitch chat today and if they're correct which we all know that twitch chat is never wrong they told me that ninjutsu back in the day used to sort of play like a, a value deck. You were really trying to sneak in these ninjutsu creatures, get value, rebuy ETB triggers. So worth noting also that you might want to pick up more expensive cards, maybe like a Mana War or the Ponder Mage that gives you card advantage or lets you rebuy ETB triggers as well while you're getting value from the ninjutsu creatures. Next up, this is going to be my favorite archetype, I think. This is blue-red, which is labeled as drawing cards by wizards. What more could you want? And first, we have some payoffs here. And my spirit animal is top of the list. This is Thundering Jin. What a magic card. <laughs> this is three blue-red for a 3-4 flyer. Whenever it attacks, it deals damage to any target equal to the number of cards you've drawn this turn. And I don't normally care about art, but for some reason, the art on this really grabs me as well. We've also got Eye Kite. This is one of the blue for a 1-2 flyer, and it gets plus 2 plus 0 as long as you've drawn two or more cards this turn. Next, we've got another powerful blue uncommon. This is a Neurophage. Three and a blue for a 1-2 flyer, and whenever you draw a card, put a plus 1 plus 1 counter on a Neurophage. So just a great card. You're playing this in every blue deck, but if you have it in blue-red and you have the ability to draw multiple cards a turn, you can turn this into a clock in the air super fast. And less exciting than the other three, I think, is Spinehorn Minotaur. This is two in red for a 2-3. As long as you've drawn two or more cards this turn, Spinehorn Minotaur has double strike. Yeah, and there's tons of enablers for all of these payoffs. Cycling first and foremost. Again, those cycling lands are going to be really high picks, so make sure you don't sleep on that. And there are a lot of blue cards that have cycling as well. Fists of Flame is a one in red for an instant. You draw a card. Until end of turn, target creature gains trample and gets plus one plus O oh for each card you've drawn this turn. So not only enabling it, but also caring about the number of cards you've drawn. Next up is Everdream. One in a blue for an instant. Draw a card and has the ability splice on to any instant or sorcery. This used to be splice onto arcane. So splicing onto any instant or sorcery for two in a blue, which means you pay an extra two in a blue as you were casting another spell and you tack this effect onto that spell, and you don't have to get rid of Everdream, so it'll go back to your hand. There's Hollowhead Sliver, which is 2 in red for a 2-2, and it grants all slivers you control. Tap, discard a card, draw a card. Phantasmal Form is next. This is 2 in a blue for an instant. Until end of turn, up to two target creatures you control have base power and toughness 3-3, gain flying, and become blue illusions in addition to their other colors and types, and then draw a card. So this gets you your second card return and can kind of double as like this weird lava axe that can dome your opponent for six out of nowhere, as well as allow some of your dorkier creatures to trade up. There's Pondering Mage, as we talked about before, and Reign of Revelation, one of the cards I think Ben is most excited about. Three and a blue for an instant, draw three cards, then discard a card. You know what I want to do? 
What's that? Attack with my Onirophage and have my opponent block and then just cast Rain of Revelation and put three counters on it. Make it rain, Make ladies and it gentlemen. Rain. <laughs> All right, next up, we've got Black-White Tribal. This color pair is where the concentration of changelings exist. I believe it's all white, black, or colorless, except for one green card at Uncommon or Common. And this enables any tribal synergies that Black or White have to offer. The enablers, like the best of the bunch of the creatures, Grave Shifter. This is just a Grave Digger that's a Changeling. Three and a black for a 2-2 with Changeling, and whenever it enters the battlefield, you may return target creature card from your graveyard to your hand. Next up, we've got a regular cohort. We've already talked about that one. People are calling this one Call the Changelings. It's the two white white for a 2-2. When ETBs create a 2-2 colorless shapeshifter creature token with Changeling. There's Valiant Changeling. This is five white white for a 3-3 with double strike. It's a changeling, and it also costs one less to cast for each creature type among creatures you control. So if you have a changeling in play, guess what this costs? White, white, which is Pog Champ. Remember that one mana, one, one artifact changeling I was telling you about? That would be a sick curve. You do that on turn one and this on turn two, that's game. Seriously disgusting. Next up, we've got Venomous Changeling, two and a black for a 1-3 Changeling with Death Touch. This is just a rock-solid card, and a card with this much toughness having Death Touch is also going to be super annoying to attack into. This card's just a brick wall. And then there's tribes that your Changeling are trying to support. So Etchings of the Chosen, this is the headliner gold uncommon. This is one white black for an enchantment. When it comes into play, you choose a creature type. Creatures you control of the chosen type get plus one plus one, and then you can pay one to sacrifice a creature of the chosen type to give another target creature you control indestructible until end of turn. So there's a lot of tribal synergies going on if black-white changeling is a thing. Slivers are very prominent throughout the set. There's also some lesser obvious archetypes. There's cats with king of the pride, two and a white for a two-one. Let's throw back to Savannah Lions here that gives other cats you control plus two plus one. So that will also give all your changelings plus two plus one. We talked about ninjas. So anything that cares about ninjas from black is also going to care about the changelings that you have in this deck. There's goblins with Sling Gang Lieutenant. That's the one that ETBs bring some goblins along with him, and you can sack goblins to ding your opponent for one and gain a life. And there's even zombie synergies. So we've got Undead Augur for Black Black. That's a 2-2. And whenever Undead Augur or another zombie you control dies, you draw a card and you lose one life. So there's a lot of these things that, like, it doesn't seem like the tribe is supported per se, like these cards that care about zombies. There's a rare that cares about vampires, but all of them are going to be supported by the changelings and the best home for those cards is going to be in black white. Last one we've got here is black green graveyard. This doesn't look like a very focused or super supported archetype, but black green just has a lot of good cards and really I think wants to be a grindy mid-range control deck. So there's a lot of payoffs for having cards in your graveyard, but there's not a ton of enablers. So payoffs is used loosely here. First up is Rot Widow Pack. This is the gold uncommon for black green. Card is a house, two black green for a two four with reach. You pay three black green, exile a creature card from your graveyard, create a one two green spider creature token with reach. Then each opponent loses one life for each spider you control. So sort of a throwback to spider spawning there. There's Web Weaver Changeling. This is three green green for a three five. It has reach, and when it ETBs, if there are three or more creature cards in your graveyard, you gain five life. It's Thrag Tusk. Nimble Mongoose is back. Single green for a 1-1 with Shroud, which means it can't be targeted by your own spells or abilities. I got to remember that when I'm streaming before. I... <laughs> That's a still a command from whatever the last set that had Shroud when it <laughs> and has Threshold. If you have seven or more cards in your graveyard, it gets plus two, plus two, so it can turn into a mean green fighting machine. There's Mother Bear. We talked about this. This is the two mana 2-2 two, two, that when it's in the graveyard, you can exile it for three green green to make two 2-2s. Two, 
Excavating Anurid. This is four and a green for the four four. And when it ETBs, you can sacrifice that land to draw a card. And if you've got Threshold, it turns into a five five Vigilance. Rank Officer is three and a black for a three one. When it ETBs, you can discard a card. If you do, you create a two two black zombie creature token. But you can pay one and a black to exile a creature card from your graveyard to have each opponent lose two life. That's going to add up quickly. Yeah, that card seems super strong to me. I'm not sure how highly you're going to pick it, but I think most black decks are going to want at least a copy of that card. Seems like a great finisher. Grave Shifter is next. Three and a black for the 2-2 with Changeling. And when it ETBs, you return a creature card from your graveyard to your hand. A little homage to Grave Digger there. And then First Sphere Gargantua is last. This is four black black for a 5-4. It ETBs, you draw a card and lose a life. But it has Unearth. So you're seeing like black green take advantage of a bunch of different graveyard mechanics of your Unearth is two and a black. You can pay two and a black. To return this card from your graveyard to the battlefield, it gains haste, and then you exile it at the beginning of the next end step, or if it would leave the battlefield. Right, so ideally you're wanting to mill your first fear gargantuas, pay that unearth cost, draw a card, and smack your opponent with a 5-4 haste. So a few enablers here, Winding Way is the first of them. This is one and a green for a sorcery, choose creature or land, reveal the top four cards of your library, put all cards of the chosen type revealed into your hand and the rest into your graveyard. So potential to draw lots of cards on this if you hit and get lucky, and also potential to dump some creatures in your graveyard if you choose land. Ransack the lab is like a black anticipate, one and a black for a sorcery, you look at the top three cards of your library, put one into your hand and the rest into your graveyard. And last here we've got Glacial Revelation. This is potentially a big snow payoff as well. Two green for a sorcery. Reveal the top six cards of your library. You may put any number of snow permanents from among them into your hand. Put the rest into your graveyard. So a way to fill your graveyard in black green, maybe with some snow synergy going on. And in blue green, this could just be the nutter butters if you have an insane blue green deck. Because it finds lands too. Right. It could be three mana, like draw four or five cards if you've got enough snow lands. I want that snow land, that snow deck to be good so bad. I do also. I think it's important to note here as well. I tried to put an 11th deck on here. I started to outline like five color green. I don't think it exists. There's Spring Bloom Druid and there's Cross and Tusker and that's it. There's not really a lot of fixing in this set. There's also a three mana mana rock that you can tap for one mana of any color. And then later in the game, you can pay three to turn yeah, it into but, a three, three. But creature. that's not like specific to green. No, but I do think there's a lot of good multicolored cards that you want to splash. Yeah, maybe, except it feels like they're all so you don't want to splash most of the cards that are like the headliners for these archetypes. These cards are trying to do what this archetype is trying to do. Yeah, I could see maybe some decks wanting to splash a lot of snow payoff cards. So maybe if people right. aren't picking up the Mardu colored snow lands and you have the ability to to sort of, I, I don't know, I found myself wanting Kroos and Tusker and the Harrow guy a lot when I was doing some draft sims this morning. Oh, okay, that's interesting. And that's going to wrap up our archetype breakdown. And now we're going to move on to ranking the top commons. So rather than Ethan and I doing this separate, we decided to come to a consensus. And obviously, these are going to change as soon as we get a chance to play with the set. But this is our best guess right now for top commons. So kick us off with white. All right, so white honorable mention is Rock's Veteran. That's the 2-4 for four mana with Battle Cry. And when it attacks, you tap target creature and opponent controls. I think that's the one that's got the highest fluctuation in power level. I could easily see that being number one if white decks really want to be aggressive. I could also see it, you know, staying where it's at and not moving up much, but super high power there. Number three, Enduring Sliver. This is one and a white for a 2-2 with Outlast 2, and other creatures you control have Outlast 2. 
So Outlast is pay the cost, tap it, put a plus one, plus one counter on this creature. Outlast only as a sorcery. Settle Beyond Reality is number two. Yeah, it's five mana removal, but it's still good removal. You can choose one or both to exile a creature you don't control, or you can also exile a creature you control and then return it to the battlefield under its owner's control. Yeah, definitely going to go up in value with the amount of blink creatures you have, or ETB creatures, rather. And top of the heap here, we've got a regular cohort. That's the call the changelings. Two white white for the 2-2 changeling, and when it ETBs, brings a 2-2 changeling friend along with it. Moving on to blue, at number three, we've got Windcaller Aven. Four blue blue for a 4-3 with flying, but it also has cycling for just a single blue, and when you cycle Windcaller Aven, target creature gains flying until end of turn. I mean, yeah, six mana for a 4-3 flyer is overpaying, but the fact that decks in this format care about creatures in the graveyard, you care about drawing multiple cards, and cycling for just a single mana is so cheap. I think this card's versatility is really going to push it over the top. In the number two slot, we've got two cards here. We had a little bit of a disagreement. So one of these cards is probably going to be in the top commons. We weren't sure which is better than the other. I'm on Reign of Revelation. This is three and a blue for the instant. Draw three cards, then discard a card. And I'm on Team Scour All Possibilities. One and a blue for a sorcery. Scry two, then draw a card, and has flashback for four and a blue. So hit hit the Twitter streets. Hashtag I'm with Ben or hashtag I'm with Ethan. And at number one, we've got good old Man of War. Two and a blue for the two two when ETBs return target creature to its owner's hand. Black, honorable mention, Changeling Outcast, though I just think this card might even crack the top three, the single black 1-1 one, one that can't block and can't be blocked. At number three, Venomous Changeling, two and a black for the 1-3 Changeling with Death Touch. Number two, Mob, four and a black for an instant, destroy target creature, and it has Convoke, meaning your creatures can help cast the spell. Each creature you tap while casting the spell pays for one or one mana of that creature's color. Top of the heap, number one, we've got Defile, single black for an instant. Target creature gets minus one, minus one until end of turn for each swamp you control. Very powerful, efficient removal there. All right, I'm going to make an audible here, Ben. I'm putting Mob as my number one. It, it reminds me too much of Conclave Tribunal. I know it's more expensive. I know it only hits creatures, but I think I think it's got to be my number one here. I hear that. It's also splashable, whereas Defile is not. So it, it's got that going forward as well. So toss up there between Mob and Defile, but two very good black removal spells. Moving on to red in the number three slot, we've got Bogarden Dragonheart. It's going to be one of those premier enablers for the sacrifice deck. Two in a red for the 2-2, sacrifice another creature until EOT. It becomes a dragon with base power and toughness 4-4, flying and haste. Number two, Pyrophobia. One on a red for a sorcery. It deals three damage to target creature. Cowards can't block this turn. Guess what creatures are cowards in the format, Ben? Changelings. Changelings. And at number one, Magmatic Sinkhole. This is five and a red for the instant. Deal five damage to target creature and has Delve. And in true Lords of Limited fashion, moving into green, we have no idea what the ranking is. We have two cards at honorable <laughs> mention. Springbloom Druid, that's the Harrow creature. And Mother Bear, that's the 2-2 two -two that when it's in the graveyard, you can exile it to make two more 2-2s. Two Those both seem like they could crack the top three. But what do we have at number three? We've got Trumpeting Herd, two green green for the sorcery that makes a 3-3 token and has rebound, so it gives you another 3-3 token on your next upkeep. And just when you thought they couldn't print another Prey Upon variant, we have Savage Swipe, single green for a sorcery. Target creature you control gets plus two, plus two until end of turn if its power is two, and then it fights target creature you don't control. Yeah, so Savage Swipe, I think, mitigates a lot of the drawbacks of Prey Upon. I've been a staunch hater on Prey Upon since we've started <laughs> the podcast, and I do like Savage Swipe a fair amount because Prey Upon's bad when you don't have big creatures, but Savage Swipe sort of mitigates that by if you've got a 2-2 that you wouldn't be able to Prey Upon with, you can Savage Swipe and boom, it's a 4-4 and still gets the job done. And what's at number one? 
Number one, we've got Croson Tusker, card I'm really high on in the set. This is five green green for a six five and has basic land cycling. So you can pay two green and basic land cycle it to go get any snow land out of your deck or regular basic land as well as draw a card. Yeah, a lot of value there. So that's a ton of information we've just thrown at you. I'm super hyped to draft Modern Horizons. Any thoughts before we go here, Ethan? I think it's going to be super important to know what the archetypes do. So, you know, you will hopefully have a good sense of that at the end of this episode, because I think it's going to be important to recognize what the lane is that you're supposed to be in so that like when you see a pick five, whatever, I don't know the the cards offhand or like what those sort of signals are going to be. But when you see the card pick five, pick six, that's much later than it should be. I think you should be willing to abandon ship pretty easily because it looks like the roster of cards will be deep enough once you're in that correct color pair. That's what I found when I was doing card spheres draft sim this morning. I kept finding myself taking the uncommon payoffs and just winding between two or three archetypes and then ultimately settling on one once I got the commons because the commons that go in the archetypes are going to fill out, you know, the 16th through 24 cards of your deck. And if you've got the right ones, your deck's going to function a lot better than if you've got these clunker commons that don't go with the archetype that you're trying to build. I do think that most of these archetypes, it doesn't look like anyone is is bad. Like maybe red green lands looks like it's kind of weak or whatever, but these all look like they're about on par with each other. Yeah, I could see red white slivers underperforming potentially, or I could see it just being absolutely busted with changeling as well. Yeah, we'll have to see. I'm excited. I I also didn't realize how fast it was coming out. It's coming out on Thursday. No. Yeah. This week? This week. Hot dog. I am going to be playing some blue, red, thundering gins and drawing some cards. <laughs> yeah, man. I'm, I'm right there with you. All right. That's a great place to wrap us up. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. You got to say, Ben, you got to say your lines. It's written right there for you. All right. If you want to come check us out on Twitch or Twitter, I am at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is crushing it almost every day on Twitch now. Summer break, baby. Twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter. And you can also tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any questions, feel free to shoot us an email at Lords of Limited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. get some general thoughts about the format the first of which is that the uncommon land cyclers there's a cycle of these one for each color that have single mana cycling on the land and do not come into play tapped they do they are in oh they do yeah crap (laughs) so close so close (laughs) if you were around during uh what was it not battle for zendikar what was the set after battle (laughs) uh okay but the set that had wastes in it.
Okay. Well, I remember that set. Doing great here. <laughs> How do we not know? Battle for Zendikar and then Derpa Derp. Call the call, uh, Rise call, of the Eldrazi? Call no. the Eldrazi up because they're here. <laughs> Rise the Eldrazi? No, that's older. Oh my God. Battle for Zendikar? No, Battle for Zendikar. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> um, oh my God. How do you find this? <laughs> so embarrassing. <laughs> Okay, here we go. Oh my God. It was called <laughs> Oath of the Gatewatch.